Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Walpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. I've had over the years, and more lately, some people writing in and asking specifically about the acute pain service, how to think about patients in acute pain, how to and when to consult the acute pain service if you have one, or honestly, if you don't have one, how do you handle those patients in acute pain or chronic pain patients coming in who are going to have a surgery and then have some acute pain on top of their chronic pain? And so I am incredibly lucky to have with me today four amazing members of our acute pain service here, faculty members here at Johns Hopkins who attend on the acute pain service People who listen regularly to ACRAC will, of course, remember Dr. Kara Segna and Dr. Hassan Rayas, who've been on a few times to talk about some great regional anesthesia topics. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Segna, who will give us a little background and introduce the rest of the crew who we've got with us today. So, Kara, thanks for being here and take it away. Um, thank you so much for inviting Dr. Rayas and myself back to ACRAC to continue speaking to your audience about the importance of acute pain management. My name is Kara Segna, and I am the Regional Anesthesia Director for Johns Hopkins Bayview, and I also regularly serve on our acute pain team. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Barnhart, who is the Director of the Acute Pain Service um, at Johns Hopkins Bayview, as well as Dr. Kelly Dremko, who is an APS attending at our main campus, and Dr. Rayas, who is also an um, APS attending at our main campus. They both also do regional anesthesia and are involved with our fellowship leadership. Today, I will introduce the idea of what an APS service is and when we are usually consulted. Dr. Barnhart will then dive further into how we approach consults and the key information we look for in order to make pain management decisions. Lastly, Dr. Jaremko will discuss what a multimodal pain plan is and how you can approach developing one for your patients. To get things started, I want to talk a little bit about the history of acute pain management teams. The concept of a formal acute pain service was first suggested by an anonymous editorial in the journal Anesthesia and Intensive Care in 1976, which advocated at that time for the creation of analgesia-providing teams. However, it took another 12 years to institute the first anesthesia-based post-op pain management service. So in 1988, the first guidelines for the management of post-operative pain were actually introduced in Australia with subsequent guidelines introduced two years later in the United Kingdom and then again two years later in the United States. So that's 1992. In 1995, practice guidelines for the treatment of acute pain were first offered by the American Society of Anesthesiologists Task Force. The Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations then established official standards in 2001 for the pain management of hospitalized patients. Now, each of these entities recognized that the effective treatment of acute pain would require improvements, not just in clinician individual performance, but also in the systems level organization of acute pain therapies. Today, most major academic centers have an acute pain service, but there is still a need for this service in many smaller community hospitals and the few academic centers that don't have one. The APS team is typically called when a patient's pain is refractory to standard therapy and they need escalation in treatment, or they're also involved as part of an ERAS protocol because having the APS team on board has been associated with many benefits, such as shorter hospital stays. Now, Dr. Barnhart, would you like to discuss how we approach consults and the key information our team seeks out to make pain management decisions? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Segnan. Thank you, Dr. Walpole, for having me here on ACRAC. 
So I'm going to talk to you, how do I approach the APS consult? So I first look at the consult request and call the primary team to discuss what is going on clinically with the patient. Primary teams often have background about the patient as well as the patient's course up to this point. Furthermore, you can gain an idea of what the team is seeking from the consult. Yes, pain recommendations, but what specifically? Also, I see how long since surgery the patient has had surgery and the, see if the acute pain is at its peak, which is usually between post-op day zero and three. Next comes chart review. I look at the patient's home medication list. It is important to know if the patient is on any chronic medications and what their doses are. Sometimes when people come into the hospital, chronic pain medicines like long-acting opiates are left off of their inpatient regimen, and this can have significant consequences like the induction of opiate withdrawal as well as flares of uncontrolled chronic pain. When someone has chronic pain medicines, it's important to continue them in the hospital and perioperatively as their body has become accustomed to them. When dealing with the paradigm of acute and chronic pain, I would restart any long-acting narcotics that the patient is on and then supplement with the short-acting opiates in the new acute pain. These short-acting doses may have to be larger than when dealing with an opiate-naive patient to get some pain control. When reviewing the chart for pain medications, I would verify with your state's Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, or PDMP, for any controlled medications that the patient has filled in the time course of the controlled substances. For example, you may see an oxycodone prescription for 5 milligrams, 15 pills, filled three years ago. From this, I would surmise that the patient had an acute pain episode three years ago and that there are no active pain medications and that the patient is opiate naive. Conversely, you may see a patient faithfully filling their opiate regimen and you can extrapolate from their normal uh, doses who their provider is as well as dosing frequency and amount. Knowing this information ahead of time will help you when you're interviewing the patient and you can corroborate the stories. When looking at home medicines, look at the in-hospital, look at the in-hospital medications list or MAR to see what the patient has been on during this admission. Look for all classes of pain medicines like NSAIDs, acetaminophen, gabapentinoids, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants, in addition to opiates. For opiates, you want to look at what the dose is and how frequent the patient has been taking the PRN or as-needed medication. I say as-needed medication for opiates because you don't want to schedule opiates for a patient. Scheduling opiates can lead to a dangerous scenario where patients may have a respiratory event because they are getting medications automatically. It's much safer to make this an as-needed medication. When looking at the MAR, you want to see if the patient has been regularly taking their medications, or are there large gaps where they aren't optimizing their existing regimen. After medication review, I review vitals for any abnormalities. This helps give a clinical picture of how acutely ill the patient is. For example, if a patient has multiple desaturations, I would be much more judicious with medications that would affect breathing. I then look at labs and pay close attention to any renal and hepatic function abnormalities. For example, I would avoid using morphine in someone with renal dysfunction to prevent metabolites from building up.
I also review past medical history and note any substance use as this can drastically alter your approach to pain management. This is a whole other topic to talk about and it is important for the APS consult. Additionally, I look for comorbidities in the history such as sleep apnea and lung disease, which may be affected by pain medications. I also look for any type of psychiatric history as some pain medications can worsen some conditions like ketamine. A holistic approach to chart review will really help you with your patient encounter in creating a patient-centered care. After the chart review, it's time to go see the patient. Your encounter really begins as you pass the threshold of the room. Before looking at the patient, look at the room. Are the blinds open? Is the TV on? Then look towards the patient. Is there a tray of eaten food? These are all a part of the clinical picture you are building. Introduce yourself to the patient. Sometimes it's beneficial to introduce yourself just as doctor, um, as some patients immediately will start catastrophizing or crying if you say, I'm the pain doctor. Um, and this can then skew your encounter. Ask the patient general questions of how are they doing and get the sense of what their experience is. I then start asking about their pain source. Ask the patient to describe the pain feeling. Give them examples like sharp, stabbing, burning, shooting, dull, ache, electric, um, as they'll be able to kind of pinpoint what is bothering them most and give you a descriptor. And this descriptor can give you insight into the type of pain that you need to treat. Um, <clears throat> I then ask them the numeric pain scale on a scale from zero to 10, zero meaning no pain and 10 meaning the worst imaginable pain and see what the response is. This can help determine if there is any type of catastrophizing. Is the, is, is the patient complaining of 10 out of 10 pain while eating a cupcake and laughing at a movie? Um, it gives you some insight of the overall pain picture. In these cases where you may have some catastrophizing or consistent 10 out of 10 unremitting pain, um, pain scale reports, you may need to do a behavioral pain scale, um, which may be more important because these, uh, this scale is based upon important observed behaviors by nursing staff um, that will give you more of a numeric indication of their pain. Ask the patient, where did the pain begin and how long has it been there? Are there any factors that are making it worse? Anything that makes it better? Ask if there's any radiation of the pain. Also, you can ask what medications have worked best for them in the past. If the patient requires narcotics, I would ask if there's any narcotics that have worked well for them in the past. Each person may respond better to a certain narcotic over another based upon our genetic differences. After getting the character of pain, I would ask about social history and drug use to the patient. I try to do this in the most non-judgmental way and tell them to best treat your pain, do you ever use any recreational drugs or marijuana? This will directly impact your treatment plan and how aggressive you need to be with your medications. After social history, I ask about how they are doing with their diet and if they are tolerating a diet. Uh, this will impact the roots of medication that you administer um, and overall absorption, possibly if they have an alias. And I then follow up the diet question with a review system that is tailored to that patient. 
I then perform a physical exam, looking at the wound uh, and also the pain site, looking for any abnormalities. Knowing the size of the wound will impact the pain. A large X-lap intrinsically hurts more than a laparoscopic port site. After the physical exam, I discuss the pain plan with the patient. It's important to include the patient in their care so that they know what medications they have available and so that they feel supported and taken care of. Sometimes knowing the exact timing of medications provide a sense of relief about the anxiety that they may be having regarding the pain and give them a sense of control over that pain. Um, for my pain plan that I employ, I use a multimodal approach uh, that Dr. Dremko is going to summarize in her section. I customize the pain regimen to best help that individual patient. In addition to pharmacologic strategies, I try to promote mindfulness tips for the patient and help them create a distraction plan for when pain flares and pain medication may not be due. So they have something other than drugs to help with their pain relief and coping mechanisms. Now I hand off to Dr. Jeremko to introduce multimodal analgesia. Thanks so, thanks so much, Rich. Before we go to Kelly, I did have a couple questions based on what you said, which I think was great. So you mentioned, and, and I couldn't agree more, obviously we don't want to routinely schedule opiates for the reasons you said. Obviously, uh, you know, patient could be mostly somnolent, get their scheduled opiates and then stop breathing. But I'm wondering about exceptions to that. Um, for example, uh, I'm sure a patient who is chronically on certain opiates at home, you would think maybe a little differently, but, but you tell me, would you, if someone takes, I'm just going to make up a number, let's take someone takes eight milligrams of PO Dilaudid every four hours at home, would we schedule that just like they schedule it at home or not? Maybe not. And then, you know, I would say the, the issue that comes up, right, is that if you have a patient who's comfortable, they go to sleep and then whatever opiate they last got wears off, they wake up in a lot of pain, they're now, you know, quote unquote, behind, and then they can ask for their PRN, but now you've got this period of time where they're having a lot of pain. So is are there scenarios like that where we might schedule opiates or not? I'm curious. I think for safety purposes, the making the medication PRN is your best bet. Um, they may be used to it. They may not be used to it. Sometimes you're just going upon what the patient's saying, and it may not cooperate to reality um, of them taking it all the time. So I would just make sure it's PRN. Um, there are differences if they're on a long acting, which is a more slowly released formulation chronically. I Those are scheduled normally. So I would schedule those, but anything PRN is that extra boost that you use for that acute flare of the pain. Um, I would just leave as PRN. As far as waking up in pain, um, that does happen. The half-lives of most of our oral analgesics or I should say the efficacy is about four to six hours. So they may wake up in pain, but they can also schedule, okay, I'm going to take a uh, pain medicine before bed um, and that'll help me with sleep. And I may have to wake up in the middle of the night to take another one. Um, and that's yeah. just out of safety. Great. And then my other question is, you mentioned the behavioral pain scale. You know, that's great. I don't know a lot about that, but I think having something like that is really a, a good kind of second measure. I'm wondering about, you know, you often hear providers will say, well, they say they're in a lot of pain, but when I go in there, they're asleep, so they can't actually be in pain. Is that accurate? Can a patient be in a lot of pain but still be falling asleep? And, and how does that work with the behavioral pain scales? Um, so a patient can still have a lot of pain and be sleeping. However, you don't want to be treating the pain when they're sleeping because 
as we know, these medications can increase the uh, respiratory effects of stopping breathing. Um, so they may be sleeping. It's good that they're able to rest at that moment. That means that their pain is well controlled enough that they can sleep. Um, if their pain is unrelenting, severe, 10 out of 10, um, and they're sleeping, that's a little bit discordant. If it's 10 out of 10, you'd be awake crying. Um, so there may be some discordant values. That's why we do behave or we, we rely on the behavioral pain skills more um, because it's more objective nursing data. Um, and that will help you determine, okay, the behavioral pain skill has been high and now the patient's still saying their pain scale is high. I think we need to do some dose adjustments to help improve that. Great. All right. That's super helpful. Thanks. All right. So let's go um, to you, Kelly, and talk to us a little bit about a multimodal pain plan. What exactly is that? I mean, we, we use that term all the time, multimodal pain regimen. What exactly does that mean? And how do you go about developing an effective one for a patient? Yes. Thank you so much for the introduction. It's wonderful to be here on ACREP. Um, you're right. Multimodal is a common buzzword in the literature, in the hospital. We're always like multimodal regimen and ERAS regimen. And, and what does that mean? So the way I describe it to patients is that it's sort of like a different pieces of a puzzle. And if we put them all together, we have a more comprehensive pain regimen. For the clinician, what I'm really looking at is looking at multiple different categories of medications that have different mechanisms of of action for analgesia. So ideally, I'll pick one medication from each analgesic drug class to decrease the overall dosage, decrease side effects, and hopefully decrease the opioid requirements while we're attacking the pain from different angles. And this sort of speaks to the question that you posed about, should we be treating their pain when they're asleep or should we schedule opioids? And I think that using a multimodal regimen, which I'll kind of go through a little more, we can have some pain medications around the clock standing scheduled so that the opioids are sort of the icing on the cake as far as the last line of defense against pain. And so that we are still treating their pain, we're just not scheduling their opioids most of the time. So by lowering uh, lower risk medications are the ones that we schedule the most often. So those would be things like anti-inflammatories, gabapentinoids, et cetera. So I'm going to go through the different drug classes, touch on some major mechanisms, indications, and contraindications. But of course, we can't just make this a recipe book where we're taking one thing from each category and throwing it together and hoping that that works for every patient. We have to individualize it, as everyone's been saying. So without further ado, I'll kind of go into that. The other thing that uh, Dr. Barnhart mentioned is to consider the route of administration. So we have IV, we have enteral, which can be a liquid or a pill. We have topical analgesics, such as lidocaine patches. And we also have regional anesthesia, which I know you have talked about in other podcasts, but it's a critical part of our multimodal regimen. Uh, so the first category everyone thinks about is anti-inflammatories. We have these cyclooxygenase inhibitors that decrease prostaglandin synthesis and hopefully decrease inflammation. So the two categories of those is acetaminophen, which we use pretty regularly. This is really well tolerated by most patients. Of course, we're staying below the four gram per day max. Typically, we do a Q8 hour dosing. In some patients, we will do Q6 for a short period of time. 
The one gram dose of acetaminophen has been shown to be better for analgesia, while the 650 and lower doses are better as a antipyretic. So we tend to, when we pick up these patients, to change their Tylenol to a one gram every eight hours around the clock. And that does come in several forms. So liquid, pill, rectal, and then IV. And often IV is saved for those that can't take medications any other way. We know it has better bioavailability, but it is higher cost. So we do try and utilize that in our patients that are NPO or cannot tolerate those other routes. Um, in as far as contraindications, we look for severe renal or severe liver dysfunction. And in liver failure, the recommendations are to do less than two grams a day. So we can do one gram BID. If they have new or rapidly evolving transaminitis, sometimes we will stop Tylenol. And certainly if they can't tolerate it for any uh, allergic reactions or anything like that, we would avoid it. NSAIDs are another anti-inflammatory, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, several different classes, not going to go into all the details today, but the two we use the most often in the hospital are Ketorolac, which is an IV uh, version, or Toradol, also known as Toradol, with equal efficacy being shown in some ED studies for acute pain, even at lower doses. So you can do 15 milligrams Q6 for up to five days, and that can help patients that can't take pills by mouth. For ibuprofen, I'm more likely to wait until they have a full liquid or a regular diet because I want them to be able to tolerate food and not take ibuprofen on an empty stomach. There are many reasons not to give NSAIDs to our patients. The list is, can be long. So certainly if they are on therapeutic anticoagulation, they have a high risk of bleeding. They have a history of GI ulcers, renal insufficiency. You have to dose adjust and sometimes avoid completely and history of bariatric surgery due to their inability to absorb everything. And some long bone fractures in orthopedic patients, they prefer we don't use it due to some conflicting literature. It's still being worked out about bone healing. So those are some of the reasons that we are often not permitted to use NSAIDs in these patients. But we do know there's a synergism between NSAIDs and acetaminophen when we use them together. So if we can, we schedule both of those around the clock so that the patient doesn't have to ask for them. The next category of medications I want to touch on is NMDA receptor antagonists, and the primary one here is ketamine. So ketamine is IV administered in, and is a master modulator that impacts pain from multiple different pathways, of course, through NMDA receptor antagonism, but also at mu and delta opioid receptors, serotonin receptors, monoaminergic and GABA receptors. And what we know is by modulating these things within nociceptive neurons, as well as crosstalk with opioid receptors, we have some effect that is more robust in people that are opioid tolerant. This also works through activating descending inhibitory pain pathways and overall can modulate even chronic pain and the central sensitization that happens from that. There are some guidelines that were put out across multiple different societies in 2018 through ASRA, AAPM, and ASA that showed that this is a safe and effective acute pain medication. And what we're dosing this as is not at the anesthetic dose. So ketamine has traditionally been used in veterinary and human medicine as an anesthetic, but what we use and what you'll see in the literature is sub-anesthetic. So we're using a much lower dose that would not 
felicitate someone. And this is shown to help with the pain while decreasing some of the side effects. The great thing about ketamine in a lot of our patients is that it's not a respiratory depressant. And so even though it has synergism with opioids for analgesia, it does not increase your risk of not being able to breathe or having respiratory depression. So that is a really important one. And because it is used IV, we can use it in patients that can't take anything by mouth. There's some relative contraindications. Active psychosis is the number one reason why you should not start it. And then because it is also metabolized by the liver, if they have significant liver dysfunction or a new transaminitis, we have to be careful. In rare cases, ketamine can cause a transaminitis. So this doesn't mean we can't try it in these patients, but we need to be cognizant of starting a slower dose, knowing that more may accumulate and trending those liver enzymes during that time. Other things that are relative contraindications are malignant arrhythmias or uncontrolled cardiovascular disease because it is a sympathetic nervous system stimulant, which actually puts additional strain on the heart. So if they have an ischemic issue or they have arrhythmias, this can worsen them. So that's something we consider. But overall, it's very well tolerated at these lower doses. And typically we start here at Hopkins between 0.1 and 0.2 mg per keg. Um, and sort of depending on the patient, you could titrate it up. There's a common misconception that you can't use this in elderly patients, and I have actually had some success in this with very modest doses, much below that. I will even go to 0.05, 60-kilo elderly woman, I would even think about three or four as a starting dose and see if just that having that in the background kind of smooth things out, especially in someone that can't tolerate opioids. The things we ask patients about are if they're having nightmares, hallucinations, or blurry vision, which can be caused from horizontal nystagmus at higher doses. But again, that's relatively uncommon. And we tell them, if you have those, let us know. We'll turn it down or we'll just turn it off. And that's and those things go away. So it's not a long-term complication. Another category of medications we use is gabapentinoids. So Contrary to what the name suggests, these do not work on GABA receptors. They work on calcium channels and decrease neuronal activity and nociceptor pain pathways. We typically think of using these for neuropathic pain. The way that we describe that for patients is electrical or burning pain, shooting pain, and ketamine is also very good for neuropathic pain. So both of these are great for that nerve injury. And depending on the type of surgery or injury the patient has, we know nerves are involved. For instance, thoracotomies, where you're cutting through a lot of intercostal nerves and so on. We know they're going to have a component of neuropathic pain as well as with amputation. So we reach for these earlier. They are orally administered. And the one thing to consider is in patients that have disrupted absorption and metabolism, we have to be careful with the doses. They have to be renally adjusted. And overall, pregabalin has greater bioavailability across a larger area of GI absorption. So if you're starting someone new on that, you could consider that if you're worried about absorption. These come in a liquid and a pill, but again, we don't have IV forms for those. Important to note that while they're well tolerated and sedation is the most common side effect, there have been recent studies that show that high doses of gabapentin or pregabalin in naive patients combined with opioids, increases your risk of respiratory depression. So I'm very cautious if I'm changing medicines on a patient that I'm not going up dramatically on opioids and gabapentin when they were on neither of them preoperatively or pre-trauma. Other medications that we consider, muscle relaxants. 
I think that's an area that we don't always think about or is not always included in ERAS protocols, but we know that several surgeries that go through many layers of muscle, these patients can have spasms and tightness that tugs on their incisions, that squeezes nerves that are already agitated. And so we do have a good benefit from including these as part of our regimen. There are several different muscle relaxants. I'll sort of list them. And then there are only a few that we have IV formulations for. They are centrally acting, but the mechanisms are not always clear for these medications. But overall, they treat the skeletal muscle spasms, tightness, and cramping. And so that's what I ask the patient. Are you having any of those symptoms? And then also assessing where their incisions and injuries are if we think that muscles would be significantly contributing to their pain. So the list of those are cyclobenzaprine, which also has a serotonin component. Important to note if you're starting them on a lot of serotonergic medications. Uh, baclofen, which is traditionally used in spasm, more spasmodic pain and back pain. Methocarbamol um, is another that has an IV formulation. Tizanidine and Valium is a benzodiazepine that has a long half-life and is good for muscle relaxation. But of course, combining benzodiazepines and opioids is always a risky behavior. If we use them while they're in the hospital, I generally make sure that the primary team knows at sign-off, we don't intend to continue this. Do not write, do not co-prescribe benzodiazepines and opioids at discharge unless that was already a home medication. So we try and transition them to something else that will help their muscle spasms as they get closer to discharge. A few other categories of medications, so local anesthetics. I, we've already talked about topical lidocaine patches that are very low risk, but they cannot be directly put on the incision, and often getting them close enough to the source of pain with dressings can be challenging. They are often good if someone has a history of chronic back pain and now they're in our hospital bed, and so everyone thinks to put them on this the surgical site, but you can actually use it for the referred pain or their back pain. And I've had good luck with that. Again, I won't go into detail, but we have many routes of administration with regional. So epidurals are something we frequently manage and recommend for our APS patients, as well as peripheral nerve catheters or single shot blocks if they're not a candidate for a catheter. And so we manage like all the catheters that contain local anesthetic on the floor through APS. And then lastly, there is new literature to suggest that intravenous lidocaine infusions may be beneficial in the perioperative setting. A lot of conflicting data and greatly need of bigger randomized controlled studies, but what we believe is that there's some anti-inflammatory properties, and this has been best studied in abdominal surgery, spine surgery, and even in the rib fracture trauma population. It's very important as we're using local anesthetics that we are carefully calculating the max doses, especially if you're using more than one. So lidocaine patches don't contribute a lot, but it's certainly important to think about that when you're calculating what the safest dose is for these patients. And then because these are high risk, we do need to be aware that they are primarily cleared by the liver. So if that's that function is rapidly changing. We need to be aware of that and watch for that. We do check lidocaine levels if we're running an infusion, and we generally limit it to 48 hours. All of those um, protocols are sort of validated in an international consensus statement that came out uh, a few years ago, and then we have an internal protocol as well. But it's very important to let patients know what the risks and red flags are for local anesthetic toxicity. 
first of all, sedation, confusion, neurologic signs are generally first. And then, you know, arrhythmias, hypotension, and even cardiovascular collapse. So one thing we're routinely doing is checking that all of our infusions are going to the appropriate location. If it's an epidural, it should be attached the bupivacaine should be attached to the epidural. And unfortunately, over the years, we have noticed some mistakes in that area. So that's a huge part of our job to make sure we're safely administrating them. And then the big topic is opioids. And we all know that opioids have risk. There are several different types of risk. In our acute pain patients, we're worried about respiratory depression, confusion. We're worried about ileus and decreased GI function. And we're certainly worried about tolerance. And unfortunately, the literature shows that when patients require high doses or infusions in an ICU setting for a long period of time in the hospital, they can develop iatrogenic withdrawal, even though they weren't on them pre, pre-surgery or pre-trauma. So we have to be careful about that. As Richard said, we use immediate release forms, and I don't typically start any extended release forms in the hospital because I want to make sure that there's someone that can manage that carefully as an outpatient, and that is harder to taper. However, if they're already on a long-acting, we try and give them that while they're here. Um, Lastly, just talking about metabolites, you know, we do worry in these patients with changing metabolism of hepatic and renal function. Fentanyl is a good choice because it has no active metabolites. Hydromorphone has mild, uh, mildly active metabolites that aren't usually clinically relevant, but things like morphine, codeine, tramadol, and oxycodone all have some active metabolites that can be quite significant and build up in these patients. So our, my general approach is to find the lowest possible dose for the shortest period of time and have a plan for weaning, whether that's with a chronic pain doctor, their PCP, the surgeons, et cetera. And some of our newer opioids we don't have on formulary, so we have to be a little creative with that and hopefully get them back to something that's similar to go home to their chronic pain regimen. I'm not going to go into the opioids for opioid use disorder, which are methadone and buprenorphine, but those also can be used to treat pain. And so that's something that we do continue and consider changing their, adjusting their doses for pain. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Jeremko. Hey, folks. This is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back. Dr. Jaremko is telling us about different classes of pain medicine. So those are the typical drugs. We have antidepressants that also can treat pain, like SNRIs, like duloxetine, amitriptyline and nortriptyline or tricyclics that can also be used to treat pain. And we do continue those, but we don't often start them in the acute phase unless we expect a prolonged course and some psychiatric comorbidities along with that. And then alpha-2 adrenergic agonists like dexmedetomidine are also have Analgesic properties can be mixed in with our local anesthetic for blocks and also used as an infusion. And when used as a sedative, we see that they need less opioids overall versus using propofol. So I was going to go through what a quick regimen would look like in a couple of different scenarios if we still have a few moments. And, That'd be great. Uh, all right. So patient is post-op day one from, let's say, a Whipple. They have an NG tube. They can't tolerate anything. They're elderly, they're naive to any pain medicines prior to this diagnosis of cancer and the surgery. So our options are IV, regional, and topical. So we would look at these patients to see if they're a candidate for regional. If they don't have systemic infection or coagulopathy and could tolerate an epidural, that's certainly one of our first choices for large abdominal surgeries or large thoracic surgeries. If that is contraindicated for any of those reasons, we can look at peripheral nerve catheters that are more uh, distal in the body or not in a place that we would be worried about uh, bleeding with a coagulopathy. Systemic infection is always a risk for a catheter because then it will stick to any indwelling device, so we avoid it there. The other IV medications that I reach for are certainly ketamine infusion and or lidocaine infusion. I wouldn't mix lidocaine infusion with an epidural or a peripheral nerve catheter, but if they can't get those, I have done ketamine and lidocaine together, and those have worked well. Uh, IV muscle relaxants, like we mentioned, and topical lidocaine patches are always a possibility. And then the IVs, you can either have an IV push, which means the nurse administers it and is something that the patient has to ask for, or consider a patient-controlled analgesia or PCA with those. And our our opioids of choice for that is usually fentanyl or Dilaudid, but sometimes morphine depending on the patient and what works for them. And that allows them to have small doses that they control. They have better patient satisfaction. And if they get too sedated from the medication, they fall asleep, they don't press the button. The downside is that it is fast on and off. So if someone has a side effect from it, they're going to feel it more and an enteral version, and then they're also going to go away a lot quicker. So we do have that peak and valley of their pain during that. Ellie, let me ask a quick question. Um, sure. You mentioned earlier that your dose for the ketamine infusion would start at 0.1 to 0.2 mg per kg per hour. Yes. What about the lidocaine infusion? When you run that, uh, what's your dose, and do you change the dose if you're running it with the ketamine? Sure. So the dosing for lidocaine infusions is based on ideal body weight, and this is really important that we calculate it based on that because there's a much smaller margin of error with lidocaine versus ketamine. Ketamine is well tolerated even with drug errors up to very high doses without major side effects. But lidocaine, we have to be safer. So we calculate based on their ideal body weight. The protocol says you can go anywhere from 0.5 to 1.5 mg per kg per hour. Um, and... What I tend to do is base this on the patient's uh, comorbidities. If they have any 
problems with um, their liver function or if they are already sleepy and sedated. What I'm going to ask these patients and the nurses caring for them to do is to watch for any of those red flags for local anesthetic toxicity. If a patient can't tell me about that because they are too sedated, they are at higher risk. So for all of those reasons, I often hedge closer to the 0.5 and um, adjust up if needed. So generally, depending on the patients, I'm somewhere around 0.75, and then we get a level at 24 hours. And if we're underdosing them, we can go up for that second 24 hours. And if we're a little high but didn't have any side effects, we'll come down a little bit and know that we'll be in a safe range. So it varies person to person, but that's the general approach I have. Great. All right. Were you going to give us another example of a patient? Uh, yes. So now someone has moved from having nothing by mouth to having clear liquids. So this is great. Now we can give them all the pills. But if you go too fast, often these patients will start to develop nausea, not tolerate it. And honestly, we don't know if they're absorbing it, especially because they will sometimes advance to clear diets without them having had a bowel movement or evidence of things going forward. And so we sort of hedge by putting our standing multimodals, especially those we couldn't give IV, on board around the clock. If they don't fully absorb all of it, it doesn't really affect the rest of our management. But we hold off on opioids in that setting because you don't want to be giving them a lot of opioids, A, slowing down their GI system, but also not knowing when they're going to start absorbing. So you might start increasing the dose and then all of a sudden they're absorbing, things are working, and now you've overshot. So I like to know that if I'm giving opioids, that they're actually seeing what I'm giving. And so we tend to wait till they are on a full liquid or a regular diet to start PO opioids in most cases. There are some, you know, quick turnaround surgeries where they're only in the hospital for a day. They start them on their own clears. As long as they do well, they advance their diet that day. And it sort of, that, that line blurs a little. So for those on clears, I would start Tylenol, Gabapentin. I would probably stick with IV, Ketorolac, um, and then... Depending on how the patient's feeling, IV or PO muscle relaxants, we are limited in the number of days we can do IV methocarbamol due to a um, preservative polyethylene glycol that is in it. So it has to, it requires a very high creatinine clearance as well as only limiting it to six doses taking 48 hour break. So that's something I consider. Maybe I would give them the PO if we were running up against that. And then we would certainly start thinking about converting those two pills if they tolerate it. Usually we'll continue the peripheral nerve catheter or the epidural during this time. And if they have any home medicines such as antidepressants or other pain medications or for restless leg and things like that, I will restart those at that time. But I'll keep the IV opioids. And then once they're in a full liquid or regular diet, we're converting everything to pills. You can calculate based on the PCA usage and the nursing boluses what an appropriate starting dose for the oxycodone or dilaudid or morphine is in those patients. If they're chronically on something, I'm usually at least at what their home dose is. And then we'll make the PR in a little bit bigger range most of the time. But the reason we don't escalate very quickly on opioids is because we're giving them so many other new medications. So they all can have a lot of interaction with sedation. So that is kind of the overview. But it, just like 
everyone has been saying we need to include the patients. And I think the most important thing is to educate the patients and the nursing team and the primary team. But what are the risks and benefits of these different medications, what to watch for, when to call us, and to know that they can reach out if they have questions so we can adjust the dose. And then when you're signing off, like APS is no longer to see that patient every day, it's important to communicate with the primary team. Why do you want them to continue? Is there a tapering plan? What should they write a discharge? And make arrangements that if they're on high-dose opioids, that someone's going to follow that. That's my overall approach. That was fabulous, Kelly. Really thorough. Thank you. I have a couple questions um, from what you said. One is, when we think about NSAIDs, especially with NERAS pathways, a lot of times it's something like celecoxib, which I believe is a COX-2 specific medication, but correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, how do we think about ibuprofen, you know, a, a non-selective versus celecoxib? And do we, do you all, when you're, do you, when you're treating acute pain post-op, do you prefer one, the other, either one? How do you think about that? So... I have kind of looked in the literature. The idea is that there's less risk of bleeding with celecoxib, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with less risk of other problems with NSAIDs, which is can affect cardiovascular risk of clots. So someone who's had um, stroke or something like that, I'm always hedging on that because that doesn't necessarily improve it. It also doesn't improve the GI irritation. I tend to use Toradol more frequently uh, and then decide whether I'm going to start ibuprofen or not based on the patient. I, Unless it's a home med, I don't usually start celecoxib post-op, but we certainly can. Um, it's just not the first thing I reach for because we hoped that COX-2 inhibitors like that would have less side effects, but it hasn't been fully borne out except in the bleeding literature. So if there's any other contraindications or concerns I have, I'm not reaching for that right away. I don't know if anyone else's practice is different. Anyone else feel differently? Okay, I'm seeing I'm seeing head head shakes. Good. All right, and then um, oh, Hassan, did you have something, Dad? Uh, no, you'll just. Uh, I mean, the one area where you'll see where you'll see it more often is uh, perioperatively. It's part of a lot of ERAS protocols, and as a single dose, uh, you know, it's it's not a bad idea. I think the other reason why you won't see it a lot post post operatively for repeated doses is just cost. Trying to mm-hmm. be stewards of uh, you know the type of the care we provide. Is there good reason to give celecoxib pre-op in a single dose as opposed to something like Toradol or ibuprofen? I mean, do we know that it actually has benefit or is it more we're treating the surgeon's concern about bleeding? We know that it has higher risk if you use Toradol or ibuprofen pre-op. So I feel like we're treating more the concern uh, and it has equal efficacy for pain as far as I'm aware of. Okay. And then the other question is about Toradol. So and you mentioned this, Kelly, and I may have missed it, but I know that we have different surgeons and even different surgical services. For example, the gynoc surgeons and the, certainly an OB, right? I mean, it, everybody gets Toradol. And some of those gynoc cases, I mean, they are, you know, just as high risk for bleeding as a, you know, um, big open abdominal surgery. And yet a lot of the uh, hepatobiliary surgeons don't want Toradol ever. Is there my understanding is there's not good evidence to suggest that Toradol used, you know, for a short period of time postoperatively, it actually does increase the risk of bleeding. Am I right about that or no? I have not seen slam dunk evidence of it necessarily increasing bleeding, but I will say that usually if patients are unstable or have been bleeding, they're at higher risk for being hypovolemic. And then we often see a bump in their creatinine. And that's the one of the first red flags that people will be like, I'm taking it off. It's not worth 
the risk of having renal dysfunction with it. So I think that factors in more a lot of the time, but bleeding is what our surgical colleagues are certainly thinking about the most, it seems. Great. And when we think about patient populations who we wouldn't give us some of this stuff to, so obviously, as you said, someone with um, poor liver function, we might reduce the dose of Tylenol. If it was bad enough, we might not use Tylenol. Uh, somebody with, you know, poor kidney function, as you just said, we might avoid Toradol. I think for older patients, we uh, might uh, not use gabapentin, especially if we're worried about post-op delirium and, and excessive somnolence. Um, are there other uh, medications and contraindications that we think about, um, you know, specifically patients with renal insufficiency? Are there certain medications that we won't give or other populations that you think are important for people to think about? So for renal insufficiency, I think that it is a lot of what you touched on, the gabapentinoids, the NSAIDs, and then any opioid that is renally cleared with active metabolites, such as morphine, tramadol, oxycodone, things like that. Um, and then especially lidocaine because of the way it's metabolized. And ketamine can worsen, uh, can accumulate with renal dysfunction, but it's very rare. So I think that um, anytime there's rapidly changing function of renal or hepatic things after surgery, I'm careful. And I start at the lowest dose. I'm very careful. I ask them to kind of trend the labs and adjust. But if someone is end-stage renal, these are not medications we're, we're reaching for. Uh, usually ketamine is okay in those patients. Hydromorphone fentanyl is usually okay. You know, regional is great um, if they don't have uremic coagulopathies. <laughs> But uh, those are kind of the populations. I don't know if anyone else has any other experience with that. I mean, we'll teach the residents here that uh, on the front end, um, you know, even if you're not in the ICU or are on acute pain service, uh, patients coming in with renal dysfunction, they have fewer options, whether it's metabolites or direct nephrotoxic activity with NSAIDs. So those are really the patients I really want to double down on any multimodals or regional anesthesia or other types of uh, uh, methods of treating pain. Um, their protein bindings also uh, changed physiologically. And so those are a lot of reasons that um, that patient population in particular is pretty vulnerable. Post-ICU patients, very vulnerable. Sleep apnea, which you know we could talk, give a whole lecture on, very vulnerable. And poor GI absorption, because IV medications can be very potent. All very vulnerable populations where you want to have multimodal in place and watch your doses. Great. Um, Hassan, while, while we're talking to you, I wonder if you could comment. Kelly mentioned that, you know, the, our common choice here, and this may be true elsewhere as well, for a PCA is usually going to be the fentanyl or Dilaudid and then maybe occasionally morphine. Do you want to say a few words or, or anybody can about, you know, when you might pick one versus the other versus the other? Yeah, so there, uh, most of the time, uh, for, uh, a lot of this will be, uh, cultural within an institution. Dilaudid is, uh, or hydromorphone for, you know, if I'm not going with brand names, uh, people go to very quickly because it has high efficacy. It's very potent. Um, where I think it has a specific niche and a role, and Kelly alluded to this, is patients on buprenorphine coming in. Uh, buprenorphine has a really high affinity for opioid receptors. And out of our full uh, agonists that we use to treat pain, hydromorphone is uh, the choice to knock that buprenorphine molecule off the opioid receptor. So that would be a first-line choice to use that one in particular. If they have renal dysfunction, you know, it's, it's not quite uh, morphine as far as metabolites and concern. 
but it should be kind of in the Rolodex there. Uh, and where I'm concerned about vulnerable populations, geriatric, sleep apnea, hepatorenal, like we talked about, uh, that's where I'll go fentanyl more often. It's more of a cleaner medication from a side effect profile. Uh, and that's, it, it's more short acting, but it can give us more there. There may be a little bit more tachyphylaxis with uh, fentanyl, so you have to watch out for that. And I think for a lot of these patients, rotating opioids instead of going up on the dose repeatedly um, is useful. Right. Uh, you know, and the last, the last thing I'll say is um, there are certain things, like there's a small percentage of Caucasian patients uh, that are, aren't great CYP2D6 metabolizers, and, and that's dilaudage, right? If it's having no effect, uh, then it's probably good in those patients to rotate to something else. So again, going along with that theme of rotating opioids instead of increasing doses. Right. I just want to, and I know we could do a whole, in fact, I, I hope to do in the future, um, a podcast specifically on methadone, but I am, it came up, Kelly mentioned it briefly, you know, I just, my understanding of the data is that methadone is actually an incredibly effective medication perioperatively, and yet we don't use it very much. And I'm wondering if you all have any thoughts on methadone. Should we be using it more? Um, you know, what do we think about that? And again, I, we're not going to do an exhaustive dive into methadone, but just kind of any thoughts to add. Sure, I can briefly go into that. So I think the reason that methadone is such a great pain medication is because of the NMDA receptor antagonism, in addition to the mu opioid receptors. And also, it has a very long half-life, so it creates that background pain control without getting an extended release formulation on board. And you can use that in the short term. There's definitely efficacy perioperatively, such as in spine surgeries, um, using that because it does last a little bit longer. The risk of using methadone is that it has this bisphasic metabolism, and that second phase can vary between, I want to say, 12 and 72 hours their half-life. And that is why when you have these patients where our SUDS team, our substance use disorder team is treating, they escalate very slowly. So you really have to watch for what that person's metabolism is going to be. Someone who's chronically been on it for pain or for opioid use disorder, you kind of have an idea of what they can tolerate. But in a new patient, you don't know. So stacking the doses can become slightly risky, especially with changing metabolism. Now, what we do know is that while once a day dosing is good for cravings and opioid use disorder, every eight hours is the analgesic dose, which correlates with that first phase of metabolism and the effects that you see. So I think that it's certainly something I have used in patients, patients that were really doing well on ketamine and then the ketamine came off and they're willing to do methadone. I get a fair amount of pushback from patients that it's too stigmatizing. Now, you can be prescribed methadone typically as a pill that can be picked up in a regular pharmacy and written by any of us as long as it's indicated for pain, and that's the QA dosing. There's some newer literature, again, I don't want to dive too deep, in the palliative care world that even using a small amount of methadone, even as short as once a day, almost works like um, a little boost, like we used to see with like Abilify and, and antidepressants, that it can actually boost the efficacy of other opioids. And I think that's through the NMDA receptor pathway, but I'm not sure we fully figured that out yet. So I think we can utilize it more, but we have to be very careful about metabolism, their QTC, and who's going to manage it as an outpatient. Great. Super helpful. Um, all yeah, right. There's some... Go ahead, Hassan, Sorry. please. Yeah, 
Uh, like Kelly said, uh, there's some really good evidence in spine patients for that if you're talking about intra-op uh, administration. And for post-op, uh, for PO administration, that half-life can be 16 to over 100 hours. It's very, it's extremely variable. And that's where a lot of the risk is. It also stays in the system for a long time. So some of the stigma is we had a patient who was applying for a new job very soon after this hospital stay. It sticks around the system for a very long time uh, and will raise questions with a new employer if they're going to do drug testing because uh, this patient was in the medical field and expected to go through that. So you want to you want kind of want to think about the whole picture, but it's true. It has some real values, probably underutilized. It's the only intrinsically long-acting opioid there is. Everything else is augmented to be extended release. Yeah, great. Thank you. All right, last question I have is for the residents out there who are rotating on the acute pain service, what do you tell them in terms of they're on overnight, they're on call, they get called? Is the, are there certain things you kind of say, okay, look, you can start this without me, right? You, you can do, if, if, they're, if they're in pain, despite the regimen we planned out during the day, you can go ahead and start this. You don't have to call me. And then other things you might say, eh, if you're going to do this, you know, give me a call and let's talk about it first. How, how do you, what, do you, what advice do you give your residents? Well, normally we try to um, have a game plan, um, you know, in our, in our sign out for overnights. So they have an idea of kind of what their options are, right? Um, and then uh, when it comes to call me first, uh, a lot of times it's patient related. You know, call me first if sometimes for some patients, any changes on this patient because they've already been somnolent once before uh, and we'd have to, we had to re-ramp up uh, opioids and other multimodals that can be sedating. Uh, and other times, uh, it's just some of the safeguards that we built in place on the service. This ketamine dose is already at point two. Do we really need to escalate further? Uh, you know, we've, we've maxed out our total dose of gabapentin. Uh, that's not really an option moving forward, you know, and so we have the bare basics of if you don't have answers, definitely call me. Uh, but a lot of it's going to be more patient specific. Uh, and if certainly there's anything that's going to change the patient's phase of care uh, or, you know, going from a floor bed to an ICU bed, depending on your hospital's rules, then get in touch with me. Great. Kara, did you have something to add? Yes. Um, so Dr. Reyes was just uh, describing a situation where he has trainees that are in-house I happen to work on an APS service in a hospital where we do not have in-house coverage 24-7. So we still do carry the pager and the trainee is, is a fellow in this case. They are still a first contact. So what we do in that kind of scenario is we discuss all the patients and the plans for overnight. I make it very clear and non-judgmental if you have any question please call me. That is what I'm here for as you're attending. And um, we have made the decision that if someone calls because they need extra narcotics, for example, that we do not write that from home. We have stated that someone needs to physically go see the patient, not just take somebody's word for it, but go see the patient, figure out what is going on, and then right for extra pain medication. So we, at our 
hospital have told the primary teams that they are responsible for writing certain narcotics overnight and need to assess. Right. But we will obviously do lidocaine, ketamine, and the, what we do is if there's, or even the peripheral catheters, we will tell them to turn things off if there's a question, and then we make it a priority to go see that patient as soon as possible. Great. Or right. call a friend who's in the house. <laughs> Call a friend. Um, all right, fantastic. Um, so we've covered a lot of really great stuff, and by no means is this, uh, you know, everything you need to know about an acute pain service, obviously. And ho- I hope to have all of you back to talk more about some of these specifics and dive deeper. But is there anything you think is just really crucial, any of you that we didn't touch on that you want to add before we move on? I would just say that pain is very prevalent, very expected, and patients have very different expectations of what they were going to feel after surgery. And I think what's really, really important at the core of what we do is we educate the patients as much as possible before surgery, but even in the post-op period or post-trauma period to tell them, I can't take your pain to zero. I would love to do that, but usually I can't do that. And so what we need to do is we need to be safe. And unfortunately, that means sometimes we have to go slower. But what I'm looking for is not that your pain score drops a set number, although clinically you can say in studies two points is significant. But what I care about is what is their function? Can they Are they laying in bed and not moving at all and haven't taken any deep breath because they're afraid of opioids? I have lots of patients say, I don't want a single opioid, but then they won't get out of bed. And I have to come up with as many other options as possible, but tell them it's better to take a small amount of opioid in a controlled situation so that you can take deep breaths, so that you can walk, so you prevent the pneumonia, the blood clots, and allow your body to heal. So that's part of it. And then the other side is telling patients that want zero pain, I can't do that either. We got to be safe, and we're going to have a plan for you going home. So I think really including patients as part of the team and doing a lot of education and sort of management of expectations of both the patients and the providers on, that are there overnight. And then to know that pain can be a sign of something really bad. And so we really get used to, oh, that's that pain patient is calling again. They just really want no pain. But sometimes we really need to say, hey, actually, surgery should come look at them. This is out of proportion. You know, we worry about acute compartment syndrome. We worry about uh, surgical infections. And we shouldn't just try and lower the pain. We should think about it holistically so that we don't miss something dangerous. Great. Really important. Thanks, Kelly. Rich. Yeah. So as Dr. Dremko said, definitely um, include the patient. Treat each patient individually, really listen to their symptoms and listen to what they're saying. A lot of times they want to be heard and it's part of your job to listen and really come up with a tailored individualized plan for them. Great. Thank you, Carol. Um, Yes, thanks. So one thing, one takeaway as an APS attending is that I try to use my platform and my knowledge base to help educate other providers in the hospital. Every con, not every consult, but some consults I get are, these patients are on regimens that are like wildest dreams. They're either way too much or way too low. And I don't judge anybody. I thank everybody for the consult and I go out of my way to not just um, fix up the regimen to better tailor the patient. But then I spend extra time with that primary team going over 
what I changed and why, because, you know, I'm only one person, but if I can educate other people to take stronger ownership of what pain is and how to treat it, that's my real goal. Great. Hassan, did you want to add something? Uh, yeah. And so I agree a hundred percent with everything uh, that was said. Um, and, uh, uh, I know we talk a lot about kind of the theory behind things, you know, on podcasts like this and in didactics and things like that. Um, but, you know, I just want to acknowledge that the practical situation is is getting tougher around the country with staffing. And, um, you know, some of these patients will be on high doses. A lot of your nurses, I think, just take them into account when you come up with your regimen. Um, you know, we're going to do Q, Q3 dosing on opioids on immediate release, and then they're going to have Q3 IV breakthroughs. Uh, that nurse may be in that uh, room every hour, um, and just that's just not sustainable or something we can expect and not a recipe for success for the patient or, you know, our frontline workers in nursing. So, um, so I just want to take a moment to sort of say we don't have perfect solutions for that, um, but, you know, kind of our reality of how uh, things are going right now post-COVID, um, we want to take that into account and see, uh, make sure we practically understand um, how things are being administered because it's different for us in anesthesia. We give the medications ourselves. A lot of times the residents are at least. And, um, you know, it's a different layer that you probably don't have to think about in your OR training. All right. Well, thank you all. Let's move on to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. So I'll ask you to share something with the audience that you'd recommend they check out. Um, Kelly, I know you're on APS call appropriately enough. So let's start with you just in case you get called away. Do you want to share something? Sure. So uh, I grew up on Star Wars movies, uh, the early ones. Uh, and then I have really, really enjoyed uh, the new series, The Mandalorian, and I highly recommend it. Overall, it's a really great story, and it's sort of like Star Wars Wild Wild West style, and I have really enjoyed that, so I recommend that. Awesome. Thanks. It is fantastic. Um, all right, Kara, how about you? Uh, I had the opportunity to go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans this year, and it definitely lives up to all the hype that it is a super fun event. What I was surprised about is that it almost felt like it was Christmas. Like they don't just throw beads, they throw toys, they throw clothes, they throw food. It was, it was just such a fantastic experience. And if you could go even with your family, I highly recommend it. Awesome. Especially if you have children, actually, because they, I bet they'd love it. Awesome. Rich. My recent guilty pleasure of watching on uh, TV uh, has been the White Lotus series. I saw both uh, seasons in a weekend, unfortunately, but it was great. Um, and there's season three coming out. And I think it's going to be in Thailand. So excited for that. Very cool. Yeah, we love White Lotus. Um, awesome. Hassan, how about you? Uh, there's, uh, there's a really nice book I read recently that I, I wish I had read in residency. Uh, it's called Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, I think, you know, growth mindset has kind of become a buzz phrase for a lot of different things. Uh, but she's the uh, uh, psychology expert who who really popularized it, investigated it, and talks about that, you know, the, the actual evidence behind it and how it can really help. And uh, uh, I think it's just a really healthy way to go through training for a lot of our listeners. And uh, I, I wish I had more of a growth mindset in residency. It would make it a lot less stressful. Awesome. I love that. 
And I will recommend um, a book called A Brief History of Absolutely Everything by Bill Bryson. It's a, an intimidating title, but I'll tell you, it really is an, uh, pretty much a history of everything. He starts with the creation of the universe and goes, um, uh, and when I say creation, I mean that as in Big Bang, um, and goes up through uh, the today and kind of what we know and everything in between. Now, it's not a million-page book, so obviously this is done uh, somewhat rapidly, but he manages to make it all really fascinating and the story's well told. There's a couple parts like the fossil record where it kind of bogged down a little for me, though that might be your thing. You might find it more interesting, but most of it was actually fascinating. I learned a ton of stuff um, that I didn't know about our world and how it works, so I highly recommend um, checking it out. A Brief History of Absolutely Everything by Bill Bryson. All right. Thank you all for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.